Insights Podcast. My name is Eric Starr. We've got Matt Norlander here at CBS Sports talking about the 2018 NBA Draft. How are you doing, Matt? Doing great. The draft was uh, an interesting time. Got to interview some of the players afterwards for CBS Sports HQ, which is our 24-hour digital streaming news and highlights and analysis channel. So that was a new thing, Eric. I enjoyed doing that. And then um, draft itself had plenty of drama because I was actually sitting behind Michael Porter Jr.'s table and my media seat. I was all of maybe eight feet from him. So uh, I don't suppose it will be too much Michael Porter Jr. talk on this podcast, but um, would just say that was interesting to watch play out in real time as the picks kept going and going and going, and a guy who was projected to be a number one overall pick, or really, you know, Eric, back in October, he was at worst considered a top three guy, um, and slips all the way to Denver at 14, and to me that was the biggest story of draft night. Yeah, that's I did want to talk about that. I want to talk about the talk sun stuff towards the end. Um, I did want to talk about some general stuff that you had seen. So let's talk about Michael Porter Jr. I was watching a draft with one of my friends and hoping that the Suns would uh, trade up for him at 16 um, with when there was the Charlotte trade, the Clipper trade, all that happening at 11, 12, 13, um, and hoping the Suns would do something there. Instead, they do a different trade that we can talk about later. But um, it looks like people got scared away by his medical history and uh, reports. Yeah, um, that obviously played a huge factor into this, and I think that played so much of a bigger factor than, you know, there had been some scuttlebutt, some talk about just, you know, his ego, how how much of a guy he is, and that might not have helped him a ton. And to be honest, like, we'll see if that even remind, is a factor when he gets to the NBA. Um, I will say I had heard some of that as well a couple months back, but ultimately the medical was scaring some people because, you know, he's a 6'10 kid, maybe creeping up there on 6'11", and he had a back issue, keep you out of college. The couple of games he did play when he returned from Missouri at the end of the season, he was a shell of the shell of the player I saw in high school. And then you've got serious hip pain, and, you know, I was told that it was significant hip pain, you know, less than two weeks before the start of the season, and teams just don't want to take a chance on that. But then, Eric, the question becomes... What spot does he fall to where he is worth that risk? And to me, 14 unquestionably, I still think at 10 or 11 you take him. I mean, if this player winds up being an all-star, there are a number of teams that are going to wind up really regretting what they wound up doing, and he's got the potential to be that kind of player. So to see him fall as far as he did, I really think it's one of the biggest slides in NBA draft history, even taking into account um, the injury aspect of it. And because of that aspect, that's, you know, directly why he fell. Um, but afterward, he handled himself really well and said, I was stressed out. He was a little bummed to see some, I'm happy with my friends, but they keep going up there and I keep sitting down. You know, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. But then, uh, I, you know, he said, listen, my parents and my agent, they said, it's not about a number. It's about fit. Who wants you? Where you go? And so he winds up going to Denver, and who knows, man? Like, maybe he just winds up being a whatever player. He's just fine, bounces around the league for a dozen years and plays for four different teams or something like that. Maybe it's like that. Or maybe he gets to Denver and is as good for that franchise as Carmelo Anthony was when he came out of Syracuse and himself a bona fide all-star. That franchise could really use a big injection of star power like that because they've got some guys that are young and, and very talented but we'll see what happens with him. It was uh, it was intriguing to follow his journey on draft night and then interview him afterward. 
Yeah, the interesting thing about Denver to fit there is they have Paul Millsap, and they can afford to potentially have to redshirt him for a year and have him just, then they can play him next year starting power forward position or whatever he needs to play. So it's definitely possible there. I was hoping the Suns would do the same uh, and trade up for, trade up for him instead of waiting until 14. I mean, they could have gone up. Jerome Robinson was still dropping. You could trade the Clippers at 13 or uh, really whatever you wanted. So, uh, but it was an interesting drop for sure, and that was something we were, that was the big surprise for draft night. Any other surprises to you? Surprises, uh, not including what Trey Young was wearing and Shea Gilgis Alexander was wearing. I think those are the two biggest surprises. They're sartorial selections. Pick wise, Jerome Robinson going as high as he did to LA was a surprise. Now he was a, he was a big time riser, and for listeners who might not have been totally familiar with the story, I'll be quick with it, but, um, was not considered an NBA player when he got to Boston College. And went to Boston College at a time when that program was at arguably its lowest point in its history and opts to go and play for BC and Jim Christian there. It doesn't get easier once he gets there and slowly built himself up into an NBA prospect. And then this season, Boston College doesn't even make the NCAA tournament, but it wins 19 games and really has its best season in a decade. And uh, because of this, Robinson played well, was one of the best players in the ACC, made a name for himself and was always going to test the waters. But but Eric, he went from being a guy that would reasonably have been selected in the mid to late second round. That was like where he was at in early March to getting picked in the lottery by the Clippers. And I think a lot of it is great interview, really good character, and such a good natural scorer. I think he was picked a little too high. I just don't think that he was... And this is nothing against him. He is an awesome kid. Like just kind of lingering around him after he was drafted, going through his phone and the conversation he was making with people, not even necessarily media people, but just Barclay Center staff and the people that kind of help you weave your way through after you get picked. Um, just a normal sounding kid and absolutely a great worker. I just, I, I couldn't believe he went that high. Um, and if you would have told anyone that he would have been picked ahead of Michael Porter Jr., like even as recent, even as recently as like, Late March, early April, it still wouldn't have been fathomable. He didn't really get pop into the first round of the mock drafts and that scuttlebutt until after the combine. That was a surprise. Um, trying to think, like there were like second round stuff. Generally speaking, is a surprise. So I don't, I don't think that's too much there. Grace now going twenty one to Utah was a surprise to me. Didn't think he really had any shot to go in the top twenty three or twenty four picks. Utah nabs him, and ultimately, you know, Grayson Allen, if he had left after his sophomore year of college, probably would have been a top 20 pick. I don't know for sure if he would have been a top 15 pick after a sophomore season. Maybe. I don't know for sure. But it's interesting that had he left after his junior season, he would have been drafted, but I think he would have been 31 to 40 range. And then by returning for his senior season, when he didn't make nearly as many notorious headlines, um, plays himself back up into... uh the top half of the back half of the first round and did not see the jazz going after him and him going so high. So good for him. And then the one thing that was not a surprise to me was Trey young going to Atlanta because I had been in contact with his camp and that was his best workout. Um, they got the best feeling off of any franchise uh, was Atlanta. That was the best feeling. Orlando, Orlando might've been a close second and Atlanta couldn't justify taking Trey young third but it was comfortable trading down and swapping with Dallas and getting him at five. And shortly before the draft began, 
uh, was, uh, you know, given a strong indication that uh, a top five pick and and was in the was in the offing, and obviously Atlanta fit the bill there. So that might have I didn't I obviously didn't watch the telecast, so I don't know how much uh, surprise was expressed at that. But um, when that was unfolding, that was my expectation. So then the Hawks go out and get. The player who led the nation in scoring and assists. We wait and see what he can do at the NBA level and with a franchise that needs a star, but also uh, needs a bit more help. Dennis Schroeder will be out of there. Trey Young will take over, and I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out with him because I think the, the four players you're going to see more attention on next season that are rookies. Aiton, obviously, in the one spot. Doncic, because he's 19 and was so highly touted and is considered entering into the league like top five all-time European player in terms of reputation and overall stock before game one in the NBA. I think Don just qualifies as a top five player in that regard. Um, you'll have a lot of eyes on Porter and then Trey Young. So those are the four guys that people will be most keyed in on more than anyone else that was taken in this draft. Yeah, I mean, with Don, no, I think no. the only people above him in terms of stock before they start probably Dirk, Rubio, the Gasol brothers, and and, uh, Drazen, probably. Drazen, Pet- maybe. Um, Kukoc had a pretty high reputation, but we're also talking different eras too, Eric. I mean, and I don't know if Dirk was higher. I mean, I'm, t- I'm remembering when he came into the league, I don't believe that his stock and reputation was as high as Doncic's, because remember, Doncic has multiple MVP uh, awards in separate Euro leagues. He's done things in, t- in terms of that and winning titles at the age of 19 that have never been done, particularly in Euro league. And so mm-hmm. when he's got a lot of those accolades on top of the fact that he was in the mix for, you know, top two, top three draft pick in a fairly top heavy draft, I fully expect that even though you're going to get other players that, you know, went eighth or 14th or 18th or whatever, that'll pop. Um, I still think like the top eight picks in this draft were pretty strong overall. Um, so for Dodgers to, to be firmly in that and near the top of it, I think also speaks a lot to him. And it'll be intriguing for Suns fans to track him because of the fact that obviously his former coach is now the coach at Phoenix. You know, you could have gone there and really tried to take a lot of what was working for Doncic over in Europe, apply it to the Phoenix situation but at the end of the day, you have to take who you think the best prospect is available. Obviously, Phoenix's scouting service th- thinks that it is Aiton at this point. I think that's a totally valid evaluation. I do agree with it, um, but we wait and see what happens with Doncic. I think Doncic next year is going to step in the league and have a better first season than DeAndre Aiton. But that's not what you're drafting for. You're drafting for a franchise player, someone that you'll keep for a minimum of two contracts, and someone that by year three or year four is an all-star level kind of player. I think Aiton can get to that level. But in the short term, I can absolutely see articles, see discussed on television shows. We get to March 1st, Doncic is averaging 15.5 a game, shooting 54% from the field, doing really well with blending into an NBA offense. And meanwhile, Aiton, while having some high points, is going to be a little bit spottier, going to have to grow defensively, and might be putting up, say, 12-8 and eight a game, but it's just not going to look as good as what Doncic is doing, and I don't think that his team is going to be quite as good as Dallas, although that might be negligible. They might be separate by three or four games in the standings at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. For sure, I, For sure, I, I have, have team was very pro-Doncic. I was on that camp leading 
couple bucks for leading the way there. And uh, I was really wanting to pick Doncic over Aiton. Didn't think it was going to happen, especially after that pressure, uh, the pre-workouts that, that he had with his son, who just seemed all but um, certain that they would go with Aiton, and they did. Um, so that was pretty interesting for sure. Let's continue to go with them. Like Jerry Jackson Jr., Bagley, what do you think about them and where they fit and how uh, where they went? Well, Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, had really good per 40 minutes. His per game numbers, or per 40 numbers, his per game numbers weren't great at Michigan State. Him going to him going to Memphis, he might be fine. I think he's just going to disappear, though. I mean, Memphis is not going to be a, a franchise, in my opinion, that's going to be in the playoffs next season or the season after that, maybe the season after that. And because of that, it's actually, I also think it's a franchise that is potentially vulnerable to relocation. And if Seattle is really able to get a team back, I think that the Grizzlies might be vulnerable to that. Um, I wouldn't have taken Jaron Jackson Jr. fourth overall in that spot. Um, if I had a big board, he would have fallen about eighth, I think, on mine. But I go against the grain from most others because his physical attributes and what he brings to the table defensively, he can step out and shoot. Um, a lot of people see a lot of really enticing potential with him. I think he'll be fine, if not a little bit underwhelming, and he'll largely disappear in Memphis. Marvin Bagley third. I think... I expect this. It's hard to say right now because the Kings are the Kings, right? <laughs> I think 12 years from now, when we are in tw- the year 2030... We will look back as Aiton and Bagley are still, barring horrific injury, still playing in the league. We will say Aiton was ever so slightly better as a player, and I mean it slight, but Bagley will have had the better career. I think, I think Bagley is, whether it's with Sacramento or a team he goes with in a contract after that, I think his game is more conducive to building success because of his skill set than Aiton. There's so many factors that go into this, it's hard to project. Um, but I think that these two players will be consistently compared because they went one and two. There was something of a debate, although I'll be interested to see, Eric, five years from now, how it is remembered and how it is framed. If it's like Aiton or Bagley, well, no. It was Aiton, Doncic, Bagley in that order for a long time, and then... You know, I had Bagley second on my list continuously, and then that finally flipped in like the week and a half before the draft. But it was never really a debate. So if we get to five years from now and Aiton winds up being just a regular dude and Bagley has made three All-Star games by then and is clearly a top 20 player in the NBA, don't want to hear people talking about how there was this debate because there wasn't. It has been Aiton as the projected number one pick essentially since the season ended in college basketball. Um, there wasn't really much of a debate. With Bagley, it was more number two or number three. And then with Doncic, it got weird late where it went from number two or number one to number two or number three. And then really two, three, four, or five overall. Um, Bagley's got a great offensive game. Defensively, I actually think he's better than he was able to show at Duke. So I think he'll play pretty well at the pro level and adapt pretty well. Um, he's a lefty, he's creative, and the one thing that was interesting to me about him at Duke, Eric, was he could put up the most casual 22-12, and 12, I think maybe that I've ever seen in college. Um, it always seemed as though he was playing in like third gear, maybe sometime fourth, but he never got up to fifth, um, and that might just be his style overall, but it was, uh, it was 
awesome to watch him play college hoops, but I never got the sense that he ever really um, exhausted his battery. It just didn't do that. And so as he steps into the league next year, uh, he's going to have to do that. I think he'll, I think he'll be pretty successful in the first year. But again, you know, we're talking about two different things here in terms of like where he's going and and then what it really means. Like he's going to disappear in Sacramento. He might be awesome, but they're a West Coast team. They're not going to be that good. Barring him putting up Donovan Mitchell type numbers, he's just not going to get a lot of attention. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a good pick. I mean, if he steps in and is able to average, you know, 16, 8, and 2.5, and that's going to be great. I don't think he'll do that right away in year one, but um, the Kings made the right pick. They picked the best player on the board available with the second pick in Bagley. What about Bamba? Bamba to the Magic. So I believe that if Trey Young was on the board at 6, that the Orlando Magic would have drafted Trey Young. But they don't get that. They get Mohamed Bamba, who, you know, you know, a year ago we had, what, L.A., Boston, Philly, all in the top three of the lottery in the draft. And so their picks got a lot more discussion, talk, and pub. This year it's, you have just franchises that have never won NBA championships, or if they have, it's only one, and they haven't been relevant for most of the past 15, 20 years. Orlando's kind of like that. Um, they've, ob- they've obviously made some NBA Finals runs, but they've been really just kind of spinning the tires for a while. Bamba, defensively, I think defensively, we'll get seven, eight years out from this draft, and Mohamed Bamba will be the best defender of anyone that was selected. And you'd have Jackson kind of trailing him a little bit, Jaron Jackson Jr. I think Javon Carter, if he can stick in the league, is going to prove to be a top five, top six defender. Kyrie Thomas has a decent chance of doing that. I thought him slipping to the second round was a joke. That guy's got first-round talent. I don't get how he doesn't go in the top 30 overall. Um, the Magic will be better for having Bamba. The question will be, how much will they let him explore and tinker with his offensive game because he changed his shot release between the end of his season and getting drafted and his workouts like they really were exceedingly impressive and there aren't a lot of people predicting this and I'm not either but Eric if we get to a point seven eight years out where Mohamed Bamba winds up being the best player from this draft um, you're probably going to have some stories written about how he impressed and not only just the interview process he's a very intelligent young man um, but his workouts were winning people over left and right. And the only reason why I think he dropped all the way to six is this, and this is the viewpoint of people within the league. This isn't necessarily my viewpoint. Some aren't sure how much he truly loves basketball, which isn't a terrible thing overall, but at the same time, if you're a general manager, you don't want to draft someone who like likes the game but doesn't love it and therefore maybe isn't as completely committed. Well, your job depends on the team being successful. So if you've got Mohamed Bamba and you've got Jaron Jackson Jr. and you're weighing them both and you think, well, from everything I can learn, Jaron Jackson Jr. just likes basketball more than Mohamed Bamba, then you're going to take Jaron Jackson Jr. So that remains to be seen, I guess. And then offensively, he's such a big guy. Um, you know, if you watch him play at Texas, sometimes it was just abnormal to see how big and long this guy was and what he could do with the basketball. And yet at the same time, when you saw some of the stuff that he was doing, you're like, He's just not going to be able to do that at the NBA level. So we'll wait and see on that. It's a good pick for Orlando. They had to pick him that he, since he was on the board there. I have no issue with it. And uh, he's just one of another. Many talented big guys taken 
in the top 10 of this draft, and um, not all are going to hit. I think a few will. It'll be interesting to see which ones wind up clicking. Absolutely. Um, let's uh, change it over to the Suns here. The Suns had three picks. They ended up, of course, trading 16 um, and the 2021 uh, Miami pick to uh, Philadelphia to get number 10, which actually was the same one they gave up in the Steve Nash Brandon Knight trade. Or they got they had gotten from the Lakers in the Steve Nash trade that they gave away to the Sixers in the Brandon Knight trade. Same one. They got their pick back that they had and got they took Mikhail Bridges, they got Aitchin and they got Ellie uh, Okbo. What do you think about all these players in general and then we'll talk about them specifically? Uh in general I think it was a good draft for the Suns. And I'm not just saying that because I'm chatting on your wonderful pod here, Eric. Um, yeah, I didn't do grades, but if I had to do grades, I would probably grade the Suns at an A-, minus, uh, grading against the field. I think them being able to pull off a trade and get another top 10 pick um, and get the player that did was good. Obviously, number one is number one. And then a Kobo um, whose game I'm not like super, super familiar with, but I had to do some research and some scouting for my mock drafts. I had him on my sort of informal big board. I had him in top 25. So I might, I might wind up being wrong with the Suns in the second round. Get like, it's different. It's not like they got the 28th or 29th guy in the big board. No, they got like a, a true verified first round talent, in my opinion. And they get him and they've got some ability, some flexibility. Uh, with their roster to see what, you know, how, how is he going to develop? What's going to happen there? Um, I thought that was a really good pick. Um, there were some other players that were available that I think were better, um, that slipped to the second round, but that's, that's kind of my general assessment of what Phoenix did with three picks here in the 2018 draft. So looking at HN, uh, what do you think, like, I've given kind of comps and best and worst case scenarios. Just thinking about it so far, I've had Drummond to David Robinson. What do you think? Um, Drummond's wound up becoming a really nice NBA player, which has been good to see. Um, because I think there were a lot of doubters about him coming out of UConn. Uh, my long-term projection of DeAndre Ayton is uh, uh, David Robinson. That's really high praise. Um, and definitely possible. And I think oftentimes, and rightfully so, writers, prognosticators, pundits, analysts. They don't allow themselves to like truly say like this guy's going to be the next David Robinson because you're putting a lot of pressure on the player and you're essentially calling it that, you know, an 18 or 19 year old is going to wind up being one of the 40 best players in NBA history. That is such a hard thing to project. And really, in my opinion, there is only one player every seven to 10 years that comes along who you can say that about. In my, in my estimation. And the most recent one, I think was Anthony Davis coming out of Kentucky. And even then, if you, you know, I could expand it from top 40 to top 50. Um, that remains to be seen. LeBron James was obviously a no-brainer. Kevin Durant was another one. People were pretty high on. Um, but not to that point when he entered the league, because it's hard to project that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to go as high as, as David Robinson, but I think that he'll play, call it 12 to 15 years. I think he'll make, I think he will make more all-star games than he doesn't. So if he plays 14 years, call it eight, eight times he goes, six times he doesn't kind of deal. Um, 
I have belief that he will turn into a top 25 defender in the NBA, and he's got ways to go. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but to me, he's too athletically gifted, uh, too physically imposing not to take advantage of that. Um, I love his offensive game, and it'll be interesting to see how he set, like he's obviously played at Arizona, he knows the area, but like how he settles into the life of being a true professional and knowing that he's not moving for four years, right? So he has bounced around high schools, did a quick run at Arizona, was out of there before the year was over, and now, you know, he's from the Bahamas for the first time in six years. He's going to be living in one place consecutively. Like, I just wonder how that day-to-day experience helps him, Eric. It's the kind of stuff that doesn't get talked about a lot but I absolutely think those kinds of discussions get and should be held by the front office in Phoenix. And you take into account not just the talent of the player, but the player's background, what his life has been like on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. And by you drafting him in your culture, in your area, how do you expect him to adapt, to evolve, to grow? I think it will be good things for DeAndre Ayton. Um, I do think that he has... Not bust potential, but flame-out potential, and I think that's a difference. I think a bust is when you're drafted, you never really show any consistent signs of the potential or skill set that you were drafted upon, and you're off the team, and if not out of the league within three to five years. That's a bust, particularly if you're taking in like the top three or four picks. A flame-out is more, you know, there were... If you collected a highlight reel of your NBA career, it's going to look pretty good. Um, you might have had, you know, decent runs and decent spurts, um, but you never could really truly get it going. You were never consistent, never made an all-star team, were off the team that drafted you within four years, and then you're just kind of sputtering in the league, and then you're just done in seven, eight years. Uh, like, I could see that being one of the options in DeAndre Ayton's uh, future. I wouldn't wager on it, but it is possible. I think it's more possible that it happens with him than that it happens with Marvin Bagley III or Mohamed Bamba or Wendell Carter. I happen to think those players' floor is higher than Aiton's, but Aiton just has a higher ceiling overall. So that's kind of my overall analysis of him. If you're a Suns fan and you're kind of torn because you wanted to take Doncic or Bagley, I think that's validated, but I don't see you getting let down in year one, even though I don't think he's going to be an outstanding player. I think you're going to see him and be like, okay, we got a force in the middle here. And he's like, a, he's like, a, I call him a power center. Like he can play power forward. He really is a center in my opinion, he kind of does a, a bit of both. And in terms of what he can do and how he's been utilized, I think there might be three or four players in the NBA that are like him from a position standpoint. Think he has the highest ceiling in the draft? Um, yes, I do think he has the highest ceiling, and that's dependent upon him actually, you know, jumping toward it. Um, particularly meeting meeting up on the defensive end. Like, if he winds up as a top twenty-five defensive player, and really just Eric like stays on his trajectory offensively, he will be a top ten player in the NBA. He's too big and tall and skilled not to be, um, but we got to see him get there. The player I think has the second highest ceiling is Trey Young, because if Trey Young, like 
manages to be a top five player in scoring and assists, not even lead it like he did in college. But if you average 27 and eight in the NBA or 27 and nine in your top five in both categories, that's ridiculous. Really impressive. And that's his potential. So that's why I, and Trey Young might have one of the widest disparities of any player, uh, upon evaluation entering into the league. So I think he's two. And just, uh, just to kind of expand off your question, I'd go eight and highest, just in terms of highest ceilings in this draft. I'd go eight and one, Trey two, Bagley three, Porter Jr. four, five, Probably Doncic. I think Doncic is fifth in that group uh, in terms of highest ceilings. I heard someone say Bomba has a potentially highest ceiling, which I'm like, I don't know about that. I mean, I can see a situation in which Bomba becomes a really nice deep three-point shooter and is so and is like a top five defender in the league kind of deal. I mean, if you really unlocked everything, sure, but. Exactly. And he's just so tall and long. It's just hard to consider him like, yeah, he just doesn't play make. He definitely doesn't play make like Michael Porter Jr. Uh, and they, they only got like two inches separating him. Um, like, there's a lot there, but I'm just not seeing the ceiling as high. What do you see of Aiton's personality, him as a person, his multiple personalities? <laughs> Aiton? Yeah, that's a little weird. Um... Didn't he, and I know what you're referencing, but I didn't read the story, but didn't he say, like, am I, Eric, let me know if I'm on the right track here. Didn't he say that, like, he gets a little bit bored with the media and some of the questions, so in a way to entertain himself, he actually takes on different personas unknowingly to the media, but he's like, okay, I'm going to answer these questions as if I was Eric, or I'm going to answer these questions as if I was Joe or whatever, just as a way of entertaining himself. Did he say something along those lines? Yeah, I didn't read too much into it either annoying to me in general, but it was, yes, he's like Alejandro or Josh, he's like, has these, I think it's more entertaining stuff than actually different personalities, but just with a weird quirk of, like, why do you even do this? Yeah, and why would you even say it out loud? Although it is interesting, just to kind of slip to the side here, you know, these players, and, you know, I give them no pity, um, but they get a lot of bad questions, repetitive questions, and it's just part of the deal, man. Like, college you're not getting paid to do it essentially you know officially you're not getting paid to do it um but so if you want to entertain yourself and not just grow to completely get so dry mouth with the process then i can get why you would do that um and just for example uh mikhail bridges specifically let me just give you a paint a quick scene here um and then i'll come back and just quickly answer the eight and personality thing overall so at the in the NCAA tournament this year uh, in Boston, Villanova makes the Final Four, right? And afterward in the locker room, um, there's media availability, and I'm interviewing some other players, and it was it was nearing the end of the media availability, and they tell you, like, five more minutes, et cetera, et cetera, right? So Mikhail Bridges had just basically, he'd been interviewed uh, by a lot of people and had spoken to the media, and he was just hanging out talking with two of his teammates, and he was laughing, showing him something on his video, on his phone, this video on his phone, having a great time. His body language was amazing, right? I go over to interview him, and it's like it's a completely different person. He, he goes from making good eye contact with his teammates, smiling, slapping his knees to head kind of down, kind of, you know, feeling his hair, monotonous responses and stuff like that. And it's nothing against Bridges, 
It's just he doesn't like talking to the media a lot, or he just gets sick of the same questions. And Villanova also like oddly programs their players to be really boring quotes. So I can understand where Aiton's coming from when he talks like like the way that he did, uh, and when he explains his methodology. Um, but the other part of me is like, especially with Bridges, is like, man, like I get it if you don't love it, but like, don't be phony. Like we can have an actual conversation here. A lot of players are good, but it was. Uh, I don't even think he realized in that moment, like how different he looked. Like, he was a different human being when I talked to him. Um, in terms of Aiton, interesting personality, have loved a lot of his honesty leading up to this process, and, you know, maybe this uh, comes back to bite him uh, down the road, but, like, so much of what he's talked about is about getting paid. Like, I took Puma because it was the most money. I was at the media availability, Eric, before the day before the draft in New York City, and... They asked him, like, what's his one of what's his biggest goal or whatever. He's like, honestly, I want to get to that second contract, which is honestly the goal of almost everyone that's in this draft. Like, if you extrapolate that, when you say that, you're saying I want to prove that I'm good enough in this league where I'm going to earn a second deal that's even more than the first deal. But so few players actually put it in those kind of terms. So Aiton is refreshingly honest. And, uh, if anything, might have been a little bit muzzled at Arizona, given that he got there and the program had all the FBI stuff, so he was kind of an itching to talk overall. Yeah, I think that, uh, like, you hear great players, or at least veteran players, the answer is actually championships, or legacy, like, top whatever in the league of all time, and not second contract. It feels like you're almost short-sighted. Uh, but, again, he hasn't been in the NBA system, he doesn't understand what it's like to play in the NBA yet. Um, I think he's got pretty decent work ethic. I don't think it's necessarily great. I don't think it's awful. Um, if you're a Suns fan, it is very exciting to know that you have not just promising them players, but like, even if they're a bad team, relatively speaking, they're not going to be the worst team in the league next year, but even if they only win 29 games or something, they're going to be fun to watch, and watching them grow up and watching them learn from their mistakes is going to be fun. And I'm aware that Devin Booker, I think at the end of the season, he's like, I'm done. Like, I'm not missing the playoffs again. We're not going to be terrible. I can't do this. You want to hear that from what's, you know, your best player, maybe the face of the franchise, although it will be intriguing to see who is going to take that mantle if it's going to be Booker and he's going to really elevate to another level next year and truly be a top 20 player in the NBA. Is it Aiton? Will it be both? Will this be a great combination? Aiton doesn't command the ball, which is good. Like, he'll take it. Um, don't get me wrong, but he is not someone, in my opinion, that needs to have as many touches per game as Marvin Bagley the third, who really thrives yes. off and needs that. Um, Shaq Kobe is a little bit of high praise. I know what you're going at, though, um, just in terms of that, like, one-two punch, uh, shooting guard down to center. Oh, he did. He really, okay. Um, they got a ways to go before they get there, but that, uh, that could well be by the, like a year from us talking right now, that could be the most entertaining and promising one-two punch among the NBA in terms of like, if you pick any two one-two punch where both players are, in the league for five years or, or less, you know? 
I see the Suns getting to 30 to 30, somewhere in the 30s this next year just because, um, I, th- I also think Booker is going to be, he's such a leader from what I've seen from him that I think he'll be the best player. With more talent on him, his efficiency numbers will skyrocket and the team will be so much better. It's, he had to, I mean, he was double to the triple team almost every possession for the entire year and he was injured most of the year, different ailments. So I think he'll be even better and more of a leader, probably more vocal, but we'll see with Asian. Um, what do you think about this whole Mikhail Bridges trade and it feels so bad for his mom at least? I don't, you obviously know the story. I'll tell the, tell the people. Yeah. He gets selected by Philly where he's from. His mom works in HR there. And then Philly calls Phoenix and offers him to them to trade from 16 to 10 for the Miami 2021 pick and, uh, Sarah Smith who went 16. Like, and, and then, so he's perfect for the Suns for what they need right now. But talk about that and his fit here. Well, behind the scenes, real quick. So he gets picked, and then I want to say 10 to 15 minutes after the trade happens, I see them in the back of the Barclays Center walking from one spot to the other. They've all got Phoenix Suns hats on, and there are no smiles. Like, they just, in the moment, that just had to be like, oh, man, we had it. We had the dream. You playing for Philly, and now, okay. You know, going to Phoenix, they're not as good of a team. <laughs> it's not close to home. It's a flight across the country. So it uh, had to be a super bittersweet moment for him and obviously his mother. Um, I, my, my common, one of my most common talking points and predictions before the draft was that Mikhail Bridges would be 2018-2019 Donovan Mitchell. I now retract that statement because I do not see how that will happen on this team. But I thought that his defensive capability, his reliable three-point shot, um, he's more than a 3-and-D player, in my opinion, uh, can step in and be a really versatile wing. I thought that he was destined to get picked between 9 and 12, and by the end of the season next year, he would be a top-two player among this rookie class in the short term. Um that's not going to happen now, in my opinion, with Phoenix. He goes to a, a situation where I think he'll still shine and be good. Um, but statistically, I don't see him being a top five or top six player among this rookie class because there's too many other players on this roster with Phoenix that are going to get theirs. And Bridges will be nice, but he's just not going to stand out to that. It would be a, it would truly be stunning to me if that happened because that would mean, honestly, I, I'm talking like Donovan Mitchell, near Donovan Mitchell impact. Not true Donovan Mitchell impact because that might be unprecedented just in terms of what he did in coming outside uh, the top ten and all that. But if he were to get close to Mitchell's numbers, it would mean that either Aiton underproduced and or Devin Booker's numbers would come down. I don't see that happening. But I love the pick for Phoenix because you make your roster, like he's a really good culture team guy. He's going to commit. He's going to play well. He'll play defense. He's not a ball hog. It's just a really nice piece. Who knows what happens with these guys in contracts and what the NBA is like in the next decade. But if you told me that Mikhail Bridges lasted a decade in Phoenix and was consistently a top 75 player in the NBA, I would absolutely believe it. And the Suns franchise would be better for it. Uh, but we wait and see on that. It was critical, though, in my opinion, to get Bridges um, on top of getting Okobo because Okobo is 
he's a he's a talented he's a talented backcourt guy, right? He's going to be 21. He's got a lot of promise ahead of him. Um, a solid but not great three point shooter, but like a combo point. Um, kind of a modern point guard who I think is going to need some time to adjust. But that's okay. Like when you're taking guys in the second round, and I did think he was a first round talent, you allow yourself some some time for those guys to develop. It's great for Phoenix that they had three picks because if they had just taken Aiton and Okobo, in just like in a hypothetical where they didn't have the third pick option and all that, um, that would have been okay. But maybe it would have been a little bit too much on Aiton. You get Bridges in there and. Pun intended here. I think he just he bridges the gap very well in terms of the young talent you have and what you can cultivate around him. So I that's why I I came out so positively uh, thinking about what Phoenix did in this draft. I think it's impressive overall. Now it goes from you got these guys first year adjustment period for the three you just drafted, and then how soon can you actually compete? for playoff spots in the West, which is so very talented, but in certain spots you've got teams that are aging as well. I don't know. I, I Getting these guys to play together will be the next step, and for the Suns, you hope uh, you hope what happened in 2018 won't happen for like another 40, 50 years, and that's, of course, having the number one pick. This was the first time it happened in franchise history, and you don't want to be in this spot and flirting with getting the number one pick again, um, So we so we'll wait and see what happens. If you think they win 33, 34 games. That obviously would mean they've got a, a relatively weak chance of getting the number one pick next year. But I personally, going based off only on the odds, Eric, I would expect Phoenix to have a top six pick in 2019. I think there are better odds for the NBA pick now that starting this next year. So even they'll have better odds than they had than in, say they pick 10, say they get the 10th worst, 10th best odds, they'll still have better odds than last year at the 10th pick because the odds are going to be flatter. Uh, with NBA, with NBA did, but it'll be interesting for sure. I think they gave Okobo uh, four years, six million. I think it was uh, last two years, not guaranteed. Uh, and then also, so I, I just really like the, the four players that they probably can start now, which is uh, Aiton, Bridges, Jackson, and Booker, and then whatever point guard you put, probably a veteran. Um, if you can add, like, I was tweeting us on Twitter. If you can add, like through trade, like I think it's Chris in, a, in next year's first or something, or um, uh, Dragic, uh, for Patrick Beverly, for Marcus, and, or sign Marcus Smart. And you get Thaddeus Young, you have a pretty good team there that can, that can start to do something and grow, and they're all quite young and able to grow. Um, so yeah, I think this will be a really, really good team now going forward. Any other final thoughts on the draft or the Suns before we go? Um, nothing on the Suns. I think we pretty much covered it, um, with the draft. You know, I might have said this last year, but I think it bears repeating. You know, when the draft comes, you're picking all these guys, many of whom were really productive and very good in college, some of whom, you know, were good but not, like, outstanding, like Dante DiVincenzo, Zaire Smith, Troy Brown. Those three players went consecutively, even Michael Porter Jr., if you want to place him in there, um, they went consecutively in the in the late lottery and in, in the first round, and they weren't, like, outstanding statistically. Who sticks, who doesn't? It's hard to picture right now who is not going to land, but a lot of people won't land, you know. There will, and there will be people taken in the second round who wind up as top twenty players in this draft. We will not get all those answers for three, four, five years at least. Um, I think this is a good draft class. I think it is 
slightly less from last year. And as if I can spin it forward as we prepare for NBA free agency and all that, keep in mind how few first rounders were really traded for 2019. And that is because, and we'll see where we, we'll see where the narrative is at in May of 2019, Eric, but the 2019 draft is really stacking up as like a bottom three crop of the past decade and a half. There is not a lot of optimism, particularly because the top is weak. Like maybe next season comes and goes in college and we find that there's really good production and some good prospects in like the 25 to 40 range, but whatever, like on the top end lottery style, there's not a ton there right now. We see how these players develop. But that is definitely the expectation as we sit here, getting ready to turn to July, knowing that almost 12 months from now, the draft in 2019 is just not expected to be that good. So teams that are uh, hoping to make the playoffs, hoping even more so because they don't want to be saddled with potentially a, a very weak top of the draft. Absolutely. Also, that the around the draft, draft picks are um, almost idolized in the sense of they think that, but they think they're going to be so good, and they probably, and they are going to be good, but they're definitely projects most of the time, and they don't make the impact in the NBA as much as people think they do, so we always have to recalibrate when we get back to free agency in the beginning of the season, because these picks aren't going to make as much of a difference until, and they're, they're not meant to be when you make that draft. Anything else to plug? Nothing to plug, man. Just always happy to be on your pod. And for those, uh, for those listening, thank you for listening and be sure you subscribe to Eric's podcast. He's as endearing and thoughtful and, uh, NBA focuses just about anyone out there. So always good to chat. We'll make sure we do this again soon and good luck to your sons, my man. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. And, uh, definitely check it out on Spotify, iTunes, everywhere else. Uh, on my Twitter is at Eric underscore Sar, E-R-I-C underscore S-A-A-R. And also check out my website for developing players, uh, EliteHoopsDevelopment.com. Thanks again, Matt. Have a great day.